0: Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation podcast, exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello, and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation podcast. Today's interview is with Chi Hatharamani. Chi is the CIO of Upside Avenue in Austin, Texas. What the heck is Upside Avenue? Upside is a REIT or a real estate investment trust that invests into multifamily properties located in high growth geographic areas, carefully selected to mitigate investment risk. Multifamily real estate investing was once only available to commercial or high net worth individuals and Upside Avenue lowers this barrier for individual investors to invest with as little as $2,000. With attractive 10 plus percent yields, especially in these days, in this conversation, we dive into why multifamily real estate investing might make sense for investors and go into detail how it works when investing with Upside Avenue. Before you listen, please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast or even better, leave a review. This really helps people find the podcast and keeps this thing going. It really helps. Thank you. Okay, let's learn something about multifamily investing. Enjoy this conversation with Chi Hatha Ramani. Welcome Chi, welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation podcast. Super excited to have you on today.
1: Likewise, thank you so much Ben. Such a pleasure to and blessing to be here.
0: Yeah, are you you're in Austin right now? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we were just catching up a little bit before we started, and I'm excited about what you're doing with Casoro Group and Upside Avenue, but before we get into that, I just wanted to start off a little bit about your background, who you are, and how, how you got involved with uh, multifamily investing.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So it goes back to, to me being born and raised in the Philippines and coming to the States for, for undergrad. I got a degree in real estate, moved to D.C., went to go work for a publicly traded REIT, called Vernita Realty Trust, which is an office-based REIT, about a $30 billion shop. Spent about 10 years there working in acquisitions. And so, you know, with working in a shop like that, I got experienced in a multitude of asset sort of classes in real estate, you know, office, retail, multifamily, a little bit of industrial and and some ground up as well, you know, experience along the way. So that's that's sort of the basis of uh, where I came from. And then I met my wife there and we moved to moved to Austin and uh, picked up some student housing experience along the way, and now specialize in, in the multifamily segment at Casoro Group.
0: Awesome. And, and just so we're clear, when you say multifamily, what exactly do you mean? What does this mean to you? Uh,
1: sure. So technically, I, from what I understand, the definition of multifamily is five or more units, apartment units, right? So we specialize in, in a class that's uh, larger than that. We we focus on institutional multifamily, which is generally 200 or more apartment units. So it's typically as you're driving down the street, those communities, you know, the fenced in communities you see, those are really what we focus on from
0: an investment perspective. Okay. And you've had experience with a number of different classes within real estate. What is so attractive about multifamily and especially these mega multifamily investments that you're making, what attracts you most to this asset class or subclass, I guess? Absolutely.
1: You know, it's really interesting now that we are sort of this is uh, you know we're recording this in a COVID environment. You can really see where where multifamily shines. Everybody needs a roof over their head. You know, whether you own a house or an apartment, it's, it's a dis- decision to be decision to be made. But everybody needs a roof over their head. So multifamily is has demonstrated itself as an extremely resilient and sort of cash flow cash flowing asset class sort of in this environment. And I think that's what attracts us to multifamily. It It's very stable cash flows and unlike sort of office or retail, those, those product tend to have resident tenants that come and go in large batches. So you might have an entire office building leased to one tenant, you know, like a tech company or something like that. And when they go, you lose all of your income, you know, versus multifamily, it's a diversified base of income. So even unlike single family residential, you know, if you have a resident living in, in one of your homes, when they, when they. They leave, you're basically footing the bill for the mortgage and the utilities and repairs and all of that. With multifamily, when you have 300 apartment units, you know you can. It, it's a very diversified stream of income which you can manage and 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 grow. So that that's really what's attractive.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and I think that that potential for scale and management at scale is one of the most most interesting aspects, especially for me, for multifamily and and to reach that, the operational. <laughs> need of managing, you know, 10 or 15 single family rentals, that sounds like a, a nightmare to me. So you can have one property management company, one big roof over all of them sort of thing and, and, and streamline that quite a bit. The, those are some of the advantages. I get that. It's like instant diversification. You have a number of different tenants all paying you income. So if you have vacancies, but what are some of the disadvantages for an investor holding Multifamilies versus some other options within real estate? Yeah,
1: obviously, you know, with scale comes the challenge of, of managing a far more complex enterprise. You know, a real estate community is, is not just a physical sticks and bricks. It's also the operation of call it 300 residents, having vendors, having professional on-site teams that manage it, having construction going month in, month out, you know, for an entire year because residents are coming and going. So it's, it's running a company at that point. You know, when, when you're dealing with multifamily, and I think it's that, it's that scale that when you know what you're doing, that, that competency and professionalism pays off in multifamily, but if you're, if you're really looking for a passive investment, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's going to be tougher, or, or if you're trying to mom and pop it, as is, is what we say, it's going to be tougher to manage, you know, a, an apartment community of any scale.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense. But I mean, some of these smaller, you take a five, six unit multifamily for an investor that has the option of buying five or six single family rentals, or perhaps one multifamily with six, six or eight apartments in it, kind of walk me through the decision process, the pros and cons of each, uh, if you would. Yeah,
1: sure, sure. So there's a couple different things. There's sort of the, the renter's profile. With an apartment renter profile, you're generally, they're more transient. They're coming in, coming in and going, right? They're professionals uh, that, that are looking for maybe, on average, we say two-year tenancy. With When you're renting out a house, it typically tends to be more families. You know, they're looking for a three-bedroom, four-bedroom house generally, and they're there for the school districts. They may have kids. So it's, a, it's just a different profile from that perspective. So one of the benefits, I think, of, C, of single-family rental is really the longevity of the renter base. But with multifamily you know sort of you can you can get more rent per foot we call it for every square foot that you're leasing so there's that opportunity from that perspective there's from a single family perspective i think you're more focused on what what we call sales comps you know so it's basically what are other houses in the area selling for and that's sort of where you're limited you know you're if your house is worth about four hundred thousand dollars that's sort of what it's worth with an apartment community you can buy an apartment complex for let's just call it also 400000 dollars but do all sorts of things to improve the resident experience. So you you know you, you can add washer dryers to the units, you can increase the rent, you know, and by doing that you increase what's called NOI, net operating income. And given the way multifamily trades, it trades more like commercial real estate, you basically get a multiple on that, on that NOI, or we call it a cap rate in this case. So with that you can sort of force value creation. So that's another sort of difference between the two. Now, I think, you know, I do own, uh, rental houses as well, personally, in addition to having made investments in multifamily and they're just different. From, from a single family perspective, it, it is nice to know that, you know, you can, you can drive down to the house and it's, it's, it's all yours. And, and, you know, if you ever need to sell it, one of the benefits of single family homes is liquidity, right? You can basically post it on the MLS and get that, you know, puppy sold in, in two weeks, if you're in a good market, you know, multifamily, not so much. Now the con- and,
0: yeah go ahead. And, and the lack of liquidity is more that it's just serious investors that are buying these multifamilies as opposed to, you know, I, I want it because the yard looks nice sort of home buyers, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah. The,
0: the transaction timelines
1: are longer. The, the diligence is longer, right? You go far deeper when you're spending $10 million of, of equity into, into a, a deal rather than, you know, 5% down on a, on a $400,000 house. So there's, there's that little differential there. And there's a fiduciary responsibility as well, which is so important, right? For us being sponsors, for our investors, we have a fiduciary responsibility to treat their money at, at a much, much higher standard that we would our own money. So I can't treat it like I would my own personal money, right? The standards are just much higher. So that adds a layer of complexity as well.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. Casoro Group, you guys have been doing these mega multifamilies for a number of years. What? fundamental risks do you see to the multifamily investing thesis? I'm hearing things with Corona, this is being recorded late August, that people want to get out of the cities and have more space. Maybe this is just a phase, but is is this a fundamental risk to the, let's have a a giant multifamily stocket full of amenities, maybe a little bit of extra space, but like, help me think through this kind of systemic risks here.
1: Sure. Sure. So, uh, interestingly enough, I think if I include student housing and senior housing as sort of categories within multifamily, it starts to paint that picture more more clearly. So, conventional multifamily, which is sort of you know the the space that we play in, has has fortunately done very well, and we think it's done very well during the Corona time period because of sort of stimulus, the CARES Act, the Heals Act, and all of that have really propelled. By giving money to renters, it allows them to to pay rent, right? So that that's really propelled sort of the multifamily, the conventional multifamily industry. To the extent that actually right now, uh, fundamentals are even better than they were pre COVID. Not by much, but I mean, you know, properties were already doing, uh, multifamily was already doing very well. They're only doing a little bit better. But where you're actually starting to see the contrast now is with student housing and senior housing. So with student housing, because, you know, universities are shutting
0: down effectively and going virtual <laughs> nobody's in them because they're not going to school Nobody Right?
1: <laughs> students are not coming back to universities and, and and we're starting to see sort of the cracks there same thing with senior you know if, if you've got mom and pop living at home and it's time to move you know a parent into sort of a senior housing facility you're going to think twice at this point right from a, from a safety perspective and that's what's actually happening in the student how senior housing industry right now where there there's uh, they're they're well-occupied, but there's very slow-moving into it, you know? So it really depends on which sub-segment you are of what the world we call multifamily.
0: Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. But even with the traditional non-student, non-elderly multifamily, I mean, it sounds like this is propped up by the stimulus and, and free money, right? It, it's like, as soon as this runs out, which <laughs> is debatable if they ever turn off the faucet, I suppose, but as soon as, in theory, it's, the, the, it runs out and they stop paying this, I mean, are we going to see mass exodus from, from multifamily people into rural areas? What is kind of your thoughts on, on these macro trends?
1: Right. Yeah, I think and, and uh, that's obviously the concern that 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 we, we think we're gonna face in 2021 is well what actually truly happens. But the truth is it, it's sort of counterbalanced by the fact that people need a place to live, right? So it's it's not so much that they're just gonna move out in mass exodus, it may be that they can't afford to pay rent for a month or two or we have to we have to work out a payment plan with them, right? So that if, that affects multifamily fundamentals, but the question is how how much and how long? Internally, just, you know, we're we're obviously uh, watching the markets closely, but we think 2021 is probably going to be a choppy year for everybody. But by 2022, we expect things to be back to normal, you know? So, and the question is, you know, okay, well, how, how do you handle that? How do you, how do you ride through that? The The, the reality is that multifamily or real estate in general, generally is best played as a long-term investment because there's so many frictional costs getting in and out of a deal it's your best served holding it three, five, seven, ten 10 years. That's really how ultra high net worth families invest in real estate for a decade plus, right? So it's depends on your strategy, really. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a very good point. Even if it, that there's some near-term pain, what's your longer-term 10-plus-year thesis, does this make sense? And that should be driving the decision to invest or not. I'm curious, Kisoro and Upside, you operate only within Austin area?
1: We actually operate within, well, we operate within <laughs> tex- Central Texas primarily. <laughs> And we do have some investments outside of Texas, but we are generally sharpshooters in Texas. That's what we're, we're known for when it comes to institutional investing, your LP, the passive investor in, in our deal wants to know that we actually have the operational uh, expertise and that we're targeted in the areas that we work. Right. So we do Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, and Houston. We own about 5,500 units today. So it's about 19 properties, generally all institutional uh, and operate in that, in that uh, arena. We're also vertically integrated as a sponsor, which means that we have everything from sort of property management, construction management, asset management. We have a general contractor affiliated. We do utility billing, green improvements, all of that sort of in this ecosystem uh, of our companies, you know, that that creates this value add um, opportunity.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. And actually I just had a podcast guest on Mark Podolsky and he said, one of his mentors had said, you know, when you're a kid and you're burning ants with a magnifying glass, if you're moving that glass all the way around, you're never going to burn the thing, right? So you got to really focus on that ant and keep that magnifying glass in the same spot. And it's just, it's seared into my memory that if you're always chasing all of these other things, like you guys, I mean, you're a sharpshooter in Texas, you know the market. So you focus, focus on your competencies and double down on your strengths there. I get that. I'm curious, in Texas, I mean, Central Texas is a a, a big area, what factors are you looking at before going after a development? What kind of demographics, population, job growth, like all of these factors that are kind of most important when making these investment decisions?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're obviously focused on location, right? And, fortunately, Texas has been sort of one of the largest in migration states, right? It's got like, what, 30 million people today, 29 million people. And it's just continuing to attract folks from the West Coast, East Coast, Northern states, et cetera. So generally speaking, Texas has been great. Now within, within Texas, we focus on the largest metro areas, which, which is in and of itself a security blanket because it creates liquidity and basically the, the mass of the urban scale in any of these major cities makes basically gives you a large enough renter pool such that you know you're probably not gonna land up in a situation where, you know, one employer leaves and you're 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 kind of out. So location is primary is, is very critical. But I'll take Houston for an example. It really depends on where you are in Houston, you know, whether you're you're oh, yeah. in West Coast or you're in Greenspoint, you know, just and no I don't mean to get too specific here, but it you know, your submarket and, and, and your half a mile block from from the next place really does matter as to where you chase. You know so we're we're focused on sort of location specific, neighborhood specific. We look at the schools, we look at the uh, the home prices. We look at the average median income, right? The demographic of the folks. We also when when we dig into an asset, we study their rent role, we study their the physical condition very, very acutely because those those things really matter, right? The, the quality of the income that you're getting from the asset matters and also the quality of the real estate itself and its ability to attract people that will pay you that income, it also matters, right? So those are some of the key factors that we're looking into. There's obviously a, a myriad more, but those are some of the big ones.
0: What are the, some of the glaring red flags? You go into a market that maybe ticks the box on some of these, but what kind of jumps out and it's a, it's a no-go? Like, are you looking at water availability and things like this, like super long term?
1: <laughs> For, fortunately, it, you know, it, it, in, in the inner city, water, water is, tends to be available. What we would be considered about is floodplains. Like Houston, you know, your flood insurance can be, can be uh, surprisingly high in, in Houston. But yeah, r- red flags generally, you're, you're looking both to the market, uh, submarket and, and also to the property itself. So from a submarket standpoint, you know, we we want to make sure that the the, the property is sort of well located in the submarket, the submarket is is performing. When you drive around the neighborhood, you wanna see that people, you know, places are kept up well, retail is doing well, you know, generally businesses and services are humming in an area. That tells you this is a vibrant and 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 you know, it's a strong area in which people, the people that live on your property are probably going to be able to find jobs in you know, the area, and, and that's what attracts it. When it comes down to the property itself, you're looking really to the, the physical asset itself. You know, how, What's the quality? What's the condition? What's the curb appeal? How well has, has the equipment been maintained? And one of the big things with sort of value-add properties that we deal with is that they're a little older. They're like 1980s, 1990s, sometimes even 1970s. And so you have to consider things like the roofs, the parking lot, the the HVAC units, the air conditioning units, right, inside and outside the, the property, the water heaters, like these things could be really large capital items, from, you know, from that perspective. You also want to see, you know, the resident base, the quality. Are they actually paying, or is there a lot of delinquency at the property? You know, are there are there key signals that tell you, hey, this resident base, you know, the management prior management or the prior owner has not really done a good job either screening the residents or teaching the residents how to how to live at this community. You know those things could signal some pretty big flags once you take over now at the same time those things also create opportunity for upside right because that that indicates generally it goes hand in hand that the property is not actually being maintained that well not being operated that well and that's really part of the upside story
0: but yeah yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What does a perfect investment a multifamily investment opportunity look like? Obviously, you make most of your money when you buy so at a great price. But besides that, I'm what are the massive levers you can pull right off the bat and 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 force that appreciation, get a lot of value right off the bat?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we're we're looking we look for properties that have definitely least operational and and, and physical upside. And I keep coming back to that, but that's really where it's at. Because the the operational upside is is really, you're looking for revenue generation, you're looking for expense savings, and you're looking to control taxes and insurance and those kinds of factors through sort of long-term planning, right? And then from a physical standpoint, you're saying, what kind of dollars can I put in? to actually improve the quality of the, of the property? Can I, can I add, you know, can I upgrade the amenities? Can I upgrade the fitness center? Can I upgrade sort of the entire landscaping? All of all, all the features that when a resident drives up to the property they find really exciting and the, and the user experience grows, right? And then there's other aspects like safety, creating a sense of community. So community programs, Th- those are all the things you can do from an operational standpoint that really make a resident, you know, want to live at your community. Now, as a company, our, our vision is to create better homes for better lives. And we believe that. That's our that's our company vision and our motto. We, we, we take that very seriously. So when we look at a community, we we look at all the, all these different aspects. You know, what's the safety look like? You know, how are our residents doing? Can we create a sense of community? Can we give them access to financial resources and, and other you know, training and, and after school programs? Like what can we do to make their experience better, you know, so that they want to stay. When residents stay, when you're we call it retention, when you have higher retention, you will find that your your NOI will automatically go up, right? There's just a lot of things that they do right. They they, you know, when when residents are very happy, they tend to pay rent, right? They don't skip, they don't, they don't ask for you know, push for concessions, they don't also don't leave the units, which means you don't have you have a lower turnover expense. All these things just improve NOI, which ultimately improves property value, increases property value
0: yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Retention is a huge thing, especially in in, in these gigantic uh, multifamilies. What trends are you seeing here? Increased importance of amenities, increased sense of community, increased open space? Like what are kind of the the bigger trends with that you're seeing to increase this retention and make people uh, be happy in these living situations?
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the old playbook pre-COVID playbook is sort of out the window at this point and right now with everybody working from home.
0: I, with yeah, everything,
1: right? With everything. <laughs> with <middle right>? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. With, 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 with all of this, you know, our residents are going through a tremendous amount of stream, right? It, 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 this is a different world. So being there, really creating a sense of community and community services and being responsive to them, meeting their, meeting their, their needs for maintenance and, and just general care seems to be the most important thing we can do and that actually is our highest priority right now. It's sort of back to basics at this point. You know, it's the, the whole, uh, the whole push for how can you have the highest amenities, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the f- half a million dollars sort of, you know, playscape outside. I mean, nobody's going outside, you know, there, there's sort of that. So we might see it, we might see the resurgence and recovery of sort of those amenities, but at this point, it's really just, it's coming down to basic care. And, and just showing that you care about your residents. That's become the key point.
0: I know Kasoro and Upside cater to a different audience with more institutional interest, but in terms of smaller investors within the multifamily investing space, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings or hurdles that they face when going into this, this world?
1: Yeah, I think potentially, and this is what we see with Upside Avenue, there's there's quite quite a steep learning curve for, for folks that don't understand institutional real estate. You know, it's it you have to understand things like timing of your investment, when things get paid out, why why is there a three or five year hold, why does my money need to be locked up for a certain period of time, you know, why am I being charged the fees I am? All of these things are sort of critical components to understand. They're different in institutional real estate. Timelines are longer. Value creation processes are. Are longer but at the same time they're also more resilient you know they're more robust because you're de- the scale of which you're dealing with and the professionalism of, of all the teams involved tends to guarantee a, or it tends to ensure really uh, I can't guarantee anything but it tends to ensure a better outcome but at the same time things do take longer and and uh, you know you're you're part of a bigger process at this point that that's something that people really need to understand man.
0: Okay. Yeah. And and let's, uh, let's dive right into it. Pitch me up upside, what it is exactly you guys are doing, the value you're creating, and then we'll, we'll dive into more of the details.
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. So upside Avenue is, is a real estate investment trust, which basically is, is a type of, it's a type of ownership entity style. It's a diversified fund really is what it is. So upside Avenue today owns about a dozen investments. And so it's a way for, for somebody to come in with, you know, less than institutional, cash, right? So at Upside Avenue, the minimum is $2,000. So you can come in and invest alongside Kosoro Group, which is our, our entity, the, the real estate investment company's entity, into institutional deals and sort of participate on that institutional side, on these large deals. That's really what the vehicle does.
0: It's a private REIT, essentially, right?
1: It is, yes. It's a public, it's actually public, but non-traded. So it's not on the stock exchange. Public non-traded. Public traded REIT, yeah.
0: Gotcha. That's and how many assets under management, or how do you kind of measure this?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. As, so the REIT's made about a dozen investments to date. That That's sort of uh, our metric at this point.
0: Net asset value, or do, is that a public number then?
1: Not, not at this point.
0: Okay, so Upside Avenue offers you the ability to invest alongside this institutional capital in these, these multifamilies that you would never be able to invest in otherwise, well, unless you had a spare couple $10 million sitting around. So with two thousand bucks, you can get involved. Something you had mentioned earlier that is a big difference for investors is lockups, fees, timing. Uh, Timelines are longer. Can you just touch on some of these then?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think maybe maybe the best way to understand it is so you invest in the REIT, call it you know two thousand minimum. Actually, many of our investors are seventy-five hundred. You've even got a half a million dollar investor in our REIT. But it, generally what happens is so you invest in the REIT and then the money in the next quarter gets invested into sort of the pool of capital available for the REIT to then deploy into real estate. So then that happens shortly thereafter, right? At which point you're already starting to basically get your cash and cash return. And we, I can explain where the components of return come from. So then that money sort of gets invested into the, real, into the pool of real estate that the, real, that the REIT owns, which today is about a dozen assets and then you clip you, you receive a cash and cash return every quarter right and and then obviously when an asset sells then the sort of the return from that gets returned back to you as a shareholder really so that's sort of the the standard structure of, of how the investment works now from a fee standpoint the the parent company of Upside Avenue charges a 2% asset management fee on the equity so there's the, there's that fee there's also a small disposition fee on the back end but that's not always charged i think we we've also Depending on the structure of how the REIT makes an investment with Casura Group into a deal, it may or may not get a disposition fee. So we may not charge uh, a disposition fee at, at the upside avenue level. So generally, for the most part, the fees really are just the two percent sort of asset management fee for. Or and there's,
0: there's no performance fee or anything like that.
1: No, actually, that's one of the that's one of the key differentials here. Is we don't have some back end promote or something like that that scrapes you know a lot of the return of the investor. It's quite literally that there is an administrative fee just to manage the REIT, paid along the way as and when possible, but it's not it's not significant, right? So it's it's really the two percent asset, the two percent equity management fee is really where soro Group sort of earns its keep, effectively, or sorry, Upside Avenue earns its keep.
0: Yeah, the only problem with a, a flat fixed percentage on management is how can you ensure that the the incentives are aligned. Because fixed in, implies that the incentives are to grow the pool of investable assets less than asset appreciation, I guess. So how, how would you address? Uh, For sure, that? yeah. And uh, obviously,
1: we, number one is our reputation, right? It's backed upside avenues, backed by Caserber, which is an 18-year company that's delivered, you know, f- outstanding returns really the, in the industry. So we, you've got you've got reputation. But the second is, you know, in order to raise more capital, as we discussed, you have to deliver the returns. And so upside avenue has and does deliver that returns and is expected to deliver those returns. Right. It, the moment we don't, we, you know, we, uh, I can break it down for you. We basically tell investors that we're looking to generate a four to 7% sort of range of cash on cash return per year, plus another six to 8% of appreciation. So for a total of about a 10 to 15% return per year, right now, if we start moving uh, away from sort of that range, particularly on the low side, we won't be able to track capital. So that sort of keeps us in check.
0: Okay. 10 to 15%, and that's uh, with both built in. Is that net of the fees, or then you would be minus that's the 2%? The that's okay. That. And then for an individual investor, so say I invest in this public, public non-traded REIT. Non-traded REIT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, almost got it. Public non-traded REIT. How are these returns treated for me, the individual investor? And, and you know, disclaimer, this is not investment advice, seek professional advice, all of that applies obviously, but just higher level, how, how would it be treated?
1: Yeah. So again, yeah, that's, that's absolutely a good disclaimer. I would, I would suggest you talk to your, uh, your tax advisor, your CPA, but there's obviously an ordinary income component or a dividend income component, which may be portfolio, portfolio income, and then there's long-term income from, from uh, capital appreciations at sale.
0: Okay. And then you talked as well about lockups and timing and timeline. Can you address those as well?
1: Yeah, sure. So there is a, when, when you make an investment into the REIT, there's an, there's an assumption and expectation that this is a long-term investment, right? So the money gets deployed immediately into real estate. So the, the way we've, the way we handle it as our, as upside avenues for the first year, you're basically locked out. And then in years two and three, and I believe four, uh, there's a declining scale of, of fees effectively. So I think it's in year two, it's 2%, year three, it's 1%. And then from year four, it's, it's basically at par. So that means, you know, you, there, there's no cost to take out your money after that.
0: After three years.
1: After, after three years. Yeah.
0: That's pretty low, right? I mean, these investments should be really long-term investments. If I can that, pull it out and I have liquidity with no impact after three years, that's pretty, that's a differentiating factor and i would think correct
1: yeah we we actually absolutely and we we believe the same in fact the way the way we look at it is basically if you're if you're clipping a 5% cash on cash in year 1 if you had to take a 2% hit on your on your principal basically going out the 2% fee you're still net positive by the end of the first year you know so it's just it's but again that's never the intention right the intention is we're we're looking for investors that are looking to make long-term investments because that's where you make your money in real estate as with anything really like the, the compounded interest, the compounded rate of return, you know, goes up substantially, dramatically. That's how you make more money. The longer you keep your money in a in a high yielding asset class.
0: Let's dive into this a little bit more deeply. The net asset value is just the total value of all the assets, all the multifamily properties that, consor- that Upside owns as a REIT mm-hmm. divided by the number of shares outstanding, right? Correct. Correct. And then that is revalued every year or only on time at time of sale of these properties? Right. Yeah. So, upside avenue is a
1: relatively newer REIT vehicle. So it's been around for two years. So at this point, we're still not marking to market. We expect to do so once we had a certain minimum sort of corpus of assets in the REIT. Maybe, maybe 10 more assets, I think is what we're looking at before we start to value the REIT on a share basis. So at this point, the REIT has not really truly exited any of its equity investments. You know, so it's still sort of building up and as that happens investors start to get payback and then their share value also will will start to get pegged mar- basically marked to nav
0: if you exit early say after after 3 years i'm missing out on that capital appreciation or or no if you're marking it to market every year I, in theory i would be capturing that correct
1: right. Well, once we start marking any, once we start marking the share price to nav absolutely that's exactly the mechanism you just need a certain amount of assets to start to make the, the, the mark to market feasible. So at this point, basically, yes, it's, it's a fixed price. It's $10 a share. But in the, in the very near future you know, as soon as we scale up the portfolio large enough, it's going to start to move basically with asset value.
0: Okay. And then the, the, the redemption process after three years, I'm selling this to another investor on the platform, or I'm selling it back to upside Avenue
1: at this point, you're selling it back to Upside Avenue. Yeah.
0: Okay. I was making sure that there goes. wasn't a pool of extremely limited liquidity, but yeah, you can sell good luck okay. sort of thing. No, no, we've, we've
1: honored distribute, redemptions. So we've had, we've had a few investors to, thankfully not much, but you know, some, some folks obviously with, with the COVID environment have, have had changes in, in their circumstances. So we've honored a few, redemptions.
0: What kind of investors should be interested in something like Upside Avenue? I mean, who's kind of your ideal investor here?
1: Sure, yeah. So we're, we're looking for, you know, so someone who wants long-term exposure to sort of the real estate asset class and, and more particularly institutional real estate. Someone who's looking for sort of those, those good steady returns and that good, you know, the, the appreciation that a large pension fund would be looking for or a large private equity firm would be looking for. You know, so that that's sort of the investor. They just get to participate at a much smaller dollar amount, but it's effectively the same strategy.
0: Right. Yeah. No. It's definitely it's definitely a value tremendous value. Uh, like I said, I don't have the spare. 10 million dollars sitting around to have this this sort of asset sitting in my portfolio and even if i did then i wouldn't be very diversified now would i if i only owned that for somebody that doesn't know much about the texas economy multifamilies in texas what fundamental risks to the real estate market in texas do you see
1: yeah it comes back down to sort of employment employment trends job growth trends for example, one of the risks occurring in Texas right now to Houston is because of the, the, basically the oil crash, right? You've had a lot of, it's created an energy crisis in Houston. Again, we, we just had one, of, you know, five years ago, five, six years ago, and we're, we're back at it again in Houston. So you really need to look at, for every city in any state, really, Texas or anywhere else, what, what the migration patterns are and what the job growth patterns are. Texas being so heavily energy dependent, at least on paper, you know, I think a third of the economy, if I'm not mistaken, you know, has some tie to energy, you've really got to look at that. If you're in Washington, DC, it's the government, you know, if you're in New York, it's the financial sector, or, you know, the you know, various other things. Obviously, these are all diversified economies, but those are some of the key things to be looking at.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, those are those are the key drivers, and that that's keeping everything else afloat. Awesome. Well, this was this was really helpful. And I think thinking through multifamily makes a lot of sense in a lot of portfolios. So I think Upside Avenue is offering a lot of value to investors to get in at a lower dollar amount. What else, what do you want to leave my listeners with? Where can they find out more about you, about Upside Avenue? What do you sure. want to leave them with?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you can find more information on our website at UpsideAvenue.com, And that's for the REIT. And then, you know, the sponsor of Upside Avenue is really Kisora Group, which is the company with sort of the track record, with the in-house management expertise, the vertically integrated structure. So that's Group.com. One of the differentiators between sort of Upside Avenue and some of the other crowdfunding or, or retail funding websites uh, on the internet is, you know, you really got to look at who's backing it, who's sponsoring the investment. Is this a technology company that is raising money and pumping it into real estate? Or is this a real estate company that is raising the capital for its deals? You know so there there's 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 a very different sense we've we come from a legacy of actually you know tried and tested boots on the ground real estate investment in texas that that's that's what i'd like to leave it with
0: awesome and actually one more question sorry the, the roadmap you want to get 10 more properties these will continue to be in texas continue to be in multifamily. what kind of excites you most about your roadmap going oh. forward
1: that's a great question. So, in our vision of creating better homes for better lives, we also do want to grow the company tremendously. So, we have fifty five hundred units today. Our target is actually twenty thousand units across the entire Sunbelt. So, the, the REIT is is a vehicle designed to, to it has a mandate that allows it to do that. So, the REIT can invest in conventional multifamily, senior, and student housing across the Sunbelt. Obviously, given the dynamics of what's going on today, we're probably going to continue to focus on multifamily in Texas as we grow and scale up the platform over here, but eventually this is going to be diversified across the entire Sun Belt and across multiple segments of the multifamily space. So that's where we're headed.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Really exciting. Well, I'll link all of these things in the show notes, but I really appreciate it Chi coming on here and spending all the time talking about this.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity.
0: There you have it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.